You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 442 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. With this show, we're going to pick right back up with our look at what happened in 1863. We looked at January through March last time, so with this episode, we'll start off with, yes, you guessed it, April. During the war, civil unrest occurred with some frequency in the Confederacy and came mostly from white women because of severe shortages of, and inflated prices for, everyday necessities. Beginning in mid-1862, the civilian population of the South, particularly those living in cities and towns, began to suffer from food and clothing shortages. In Richmond, by April 1863, due to rampant inflation, it takes more than 10 times as much to feed a family for a week than it did just three years ago. On April 2, 1863, after meeting the previous night at a local Baptist church, hundreds of angry women from Richmond and the surrounding area gather in Capitol Square at the equestrian statue of George Washington and then march over to the governor's mansion. Denied a meeting with Governor John Letcher, the women returned to the statue. Accounts of what happened next vary. Some say Letcher did, in fact, speak to the women, but dissatisfied with his response, they march out of Capitol Square and head in the direction of the city's business district. As the women march, they attract hundreds, some say thousands, of followers. The mob then begins attacking grocery stores, various mercantile establishments, and government warehouses, seizing food and clothing, as well as jewelry and other luxury goods. Some merchants resist the rioters, while others watch helplessly as the looters make off with bacon, ham, flour, and shoes. Mayor Joseph Mayo arrives on the scene and literally reads the riot act to the mob, which only serves to stoke their rage. Letcher shows up shortly thereafter, as does Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Davis tells the mob they have five minutes to disperse, or he will order the city militia to open fire on them. Tense moments pass before the mob does begin to scatter. Forty-five women and twenty-nine men are arrested. Secretary of War James Seddon asks the Richmond Papers not to publish accounts of the riot, 
for fear it would undermine Confederate morale and fuel Northern propaganda. On April 7th, a squadron of federal ironclads led by Flag Officer Samuel DuPont steams into Charleston Harbor. DuPont plans to batter Fort Sumter, then sail past the fort to the city's waterfront. But the Charleston defenses prove formidable. DuPont's chief of staff, Christopher Rogers, will later report, quote, The fires of hell were turned upon the Union fleet. The air seemed full of heavy shot, and as they flew, they could be seen as plainly as a baseball in one of our games. Despite their armor plating, the Union warships take a terrible beating. USS Keokuk will sink the next day. Rogers remembers her being, quote, riddled like a colander. The Federal ironclads' failed attempt to bowl their way into the harbor is proof positive that Charleston can't be taken by naval forces alone. On April 13th, Major General Ambrose Burnside, now commanding the Department of Ohio, is concerned about the activities of copperheads in his area of command. The term copperhead is used in a pejorative sense during the Civil War to discredit Northerners, usually Peace Democrats, who oppose the Lincoln administration's policies and favor a negotiated settlement to the war. Exactly. In any case, on April 13th, Burnside issues General Order Number 38, which says, quote, The habit of declaring sympathy for the enemy will not be allowed in this department. Persons committing such offenses will be at once arrested with a view of being tried or sent beyond our lines into the lines of their friends. It must be understood that treason, expressed or implied, will not be tolerated in this department. Ohio's leading peace Democrat, Clement Vallandingham, who has been opposed to the war from the beginning and is now a candidate for governor of the Buckeye State, will react to Burnside's order as a bull might react to a red flag. On April 15th, Chaplain A.M. Stewart, serving with the Pennsylvania Regiment, writes to his hometown newspaper, quote, Uncle Abe and Mrs. Abe were down lately, and what showings off were here and there. Stewart deems the Army of the Potomac a quote-unquote mighty host, and that is indeed an apt description for the reorganized and reinvigorated force that passes in review before the President and Major General Joseph Hooker. Since replacing Burnside, Hooker has worked wonders. He has proven to be an excellent administrator and has taken the battered and demoralized Army of the Potomac and improved its administration and morale. The next evening, on April 16th, 950 miles to the southwest, the citizens of Vicksburg, Mississippi, and members of the Confederate Strong Points garrison are enjoying themselves at a ball when the deep booming of artillery fire brings the party to an abrupt end. While Ulysses S. Grant's Federal Infantry march south over on the west side of the Mississippi to get below Vicksburg, David Dixon Porter is leading a small Federal flotilla that is running the guns and attempting to slip past Vicksburg's formidable defenses. Although each one of the dozen Yankee vessels is hit by rebel shellfire, 
Porter nevertheless succeeds in getting his charges past Vicksburg and downriver, where he meets up with Grant. The next day, April 17th, Colonel Benjamin Grierson, leading 1,700 Union cavalrymen, embarks on a spectacular two-week, 600-mile raid through Mississippi, during which the Federal horsemen tear up railroads and divert attention and Confederate manpower away from Grant's operations around Vicksburg. On April 24th, struggling under runaway inflation, the Confederate government imposes a comprehensive tax law, including a progressive income tax, excise and license duties, and a 10% profits tax. A 10% tax in kind on agricultural produce is bitterly resented by farmers who are already subject to impressment of needed goods by Confederate commissary and quartermaster officers. Also on April 24th in Washington, President Lincoln issues General Order No. 100, Instructions for the Government of the Armies of the United States in the Field, which will be known as the Lieber Code after its principal author, German-American political philosopher Francis Lieber. The Lieber Code represented the first attempt to codify the international law of war, No similar work in any language existed when Lieber created his pioneering set of instructions. To the present day, the Lieber Code remains the foundation of international understanding regarding the conduct of war and treatment of prisoners. The aforementioned Chaplain Stewart, writing to his hometown Pennsylvania newspaper about Hooker and the Army of the Potomac, said, quote, The Army, when he took it, was defeated, discouraged, and demoralized. The contrast is now remarkable. The soldiers seem universally to have the fullest confidence in General Hooker, and also in themselves. What the result will be, time and coming events will unfold. General Hooker has not, as yet, conducted an active campaign. That will change on April 27th, when Hooker sets elements of the Army of the Potomac in motion and launches his spring campaign. Two days later, on the 29th, Robert E. Lee, from his headquarters at Fredericksburg, wires Jefferson Davis and tells the Confederate president, quote, The enemy crossed the Rappahannock today in large numbers. Their intention, I presume, is to turn our left and probably to get into our rear. On the evening of the 29th, Hooker joins the three corps that have crossed the river upstream from Fredericksburg. The Federals are encamped near the large house owned by the Chancellor family in an area known, for good reason, as the Wilderness, with its tangled landscape of dense woods and almost impenetrable underbrush. One of Hooker's innovations has been to establish the Bureau of Military Information, an intelligence-gathering unit. And so now, armed with more accurate information on the enemy than previous Army commanders enjoyed, Fighting Joe is aware that the Army of the Potomac outnumbers Lee's available forces by more than two to one. Knowing this, Hooker carries the air of confidence that led him to boast, quote, My plans are perfect, and when I start to carry them out, may God have mercy on General Lee, for I will have none. 
On May 1st, the Confederate Congress passes a resolution declaring that captured enemy officers of black regiments who are, quote, deemed as inciting servile insurrection should be brought before military tribunals and, quote, put to death or otherwise punished. Black enlisted men are to, quote, be delivered to the authorities of the state or states in which they shall be captured to be dealt with according to the laws of such state or states, end quote. Which means that captured black Union soldiers will either be returned to their owners if they are runaways, sold into slavery if they are freemen, or put to death. With the Confederates declaring that black Union soldiers and their white officers will be dealt with in such ways, the prisoner exchange cartel, which had been established in July of 1862 by both sides, now begins to break down. Also on May 1st, in Mount Vernon, Ohio, prominent copperhead Clement Van Landingham delivers a fiery speech before a large audience, which includes two Union Army officers dressed in civilian clothes and taking careful notes, denouncing, quote, this wicked, cruel, and unnecessary war for the freedom of blacks and the enslavement of whites, end quote, Vallandigham also calls Ambrose Burnside's General Order Number 38, quote, a base usurpation of arbitrary authority. Vallandigham's subsequent arrest by federal soldiers who break down the door of his house in the middle of the night will cause a riot during which his angry supporters set fire to the offices of a Republican newspaper and inadvertently destroy both the paper and half a block of adjoining buildings. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In Virginia on May 1st, Robert E. Lee leaves Major General Jubal Early with some 10,000 men to protect Fredericksburg 
as Lee moves west with the rest of the army to confront Hooker's Federals. Meanwhile, Hooker begins the day cautiously. It's nearly 11 a.m. when he orders an advance eastward by three columns over three different routes that will take them out of the wilderness. After the columns run into heavy enemy resistance, Hooker's caution deepens to a timidity that stuns his subordinates and startles Robert E. Lee, as in mid-afternoon, Fighting Joe loses confidence in his plan and recalls the columns and forms a defensive perimeter centered around the large clearing where the Chancellor House is situated, thus surrendering the initiative to Lee. As night falls, the Federals begin to throw up field works, while Robert E. Lee meets with Stonewall Jackson and develops a risky plan for the following day. The audacious plan called for Lee to hold Hooker in place with 15,000 troops, while Jackson looped to the west through the wilderness with 30,000 men to attack the unprotected Federal right flank, which is dangling in the air. The plan ignores most of the basic principles of war. Outnumbered by the Federals and already separated from Early's troops protecting Fredericksburg, Lee is going to divide his army in the face of the enemy yet again, sending Stonewall Jackson off on a 14-mile march to make a flank attack on the Yankee right. On May 2nd, after marching most of the day, Jackson launches his flank attack at about 6 p.m. In the fading daylight, the assault smashes into the Federal 11th Corps, commanded by Major General Oliver Otis Howard. Rebel yells, stunned Yankee soldiers, and the cries of the wounded and dying turn the once placid evening into a nightmare as 11th Corps buckles and falls back. Two Federal divisions are smashed, but darkness, the steadfastness of the rallied Union troops, and the disorganization and exhaustion of the Confederates halt the rebel attack well before midnight. After night has fallen, Stonewall Jackson rides forward beyond the Confederate front line to personally scout ahead because he wants to launch a night attack on the Federals. But in the darkness, he and his party are mistaken for Yankees as they return to friendly lines and rebel soldiers fire upon them. Stonewall Jackson is severely wounded by the friendly fire. His left arm will be amputated, and after complications set in, he dies on May 10th. Even though he's a cavalry commander, Jeb Stuart is the only available major general Robert E. Lee has on hand, so Stuart is given command of the fallen Jackson's troops for the remainder of the battle here at Chancellorsville, and he performs admirably in the role of infantry corps commander. The next day, Sunday, May 3rd, Robert E. Lee is determined to keep up the pressure on the Yankees. Stewart's forces press forward, occupying Hazel Grove, an important piece of high ground which has been abandoned by the Federals on Hooker's orders. Confederate artillery sets up at Hazel Grove and begins to shell the Federal lines around the Chancellor House. And remember, Robert E. Lee had gambled big time by dividing his forces to make Stonewall Jackson's flank attack possible. So, up until this point in time, Stewart's force, and the troops still under Robert E. Lee's direct command, had remained separated. But now, on May 3rd, Stewart's capture of Hazel Grove allows the Confederates to link back up. 
The combined strength of the Confederates is still less than his own, but Joseph Hooker has clearly given up the initiative to Lee, and he is in no mood to try to regain it. Especially after an event that happens at mid-morning shatters what's left of Hooker's confidence. At his headquarters in the large Chancellorsville clearing, Fighting Joe is standing on the porch of the Chancellor House when a Confederate cannonball fired from Hazel Grove shatters a wooden pillar, a piece of which strikes Hooker on the head. Dazed and almost certainly suffering from a concussion, Hooker nevertheless refuses to relinquish command. Instead, he overrules the wishes of a majority of his corps commanders, and he orders a withdrawal to a new defensive line to the rear of the Chancellorsville clearing and closer to the river. At this point, with Hooker clearly reeling, Robert E. Lee's hopes for a decisive victory are upset by news from another front. John Sedgwick is in command of the Federal force still at Fredericksburg, facing the Confederate force that Lee left there, commanded by Jubal Early. And on May 3rd, Sedgwick attacks Early. Sedgwick drives forward, pushes back Early, and thus threatens Lee's main force from the rear. Robert E. Lee gambles that Hooker will remain passive with the bulk of the Union Army, and he now leaves Stuart with only 25,000 men to contain Fighting Joe, while he, Lee, turns with the rest of his force to smash Sedgwick. Lee's assessment of Hooker is accurate, as the Federal Army commander remains idle while Lee marches off. On May 4th, Lee's bold action removes the threat to his rear, but he's unable to achieve his aim of destroying the isolated Sedgwick, who fights a skillful delaying action and escapes by withdrawing across the Rappahannock during the night. Lee now reconcentrates his army for what he hopes will be a decisive blow against Hooker. But it's a blow that is destined not to fall, because during the night of May 5th, Fighting Joe again overrules his lieutenants, who wish to stay and fight, and he orders the army to withdraw back across the Rappahannock. When the Confederates advance on the morning of May 6, they find the Union lines abandoned. The Battle of Chancellorsville is over. Chancellorsville has been rightly regarded as Robert E. Lee's masterpiece battle. Placed in real jeopardy by Hooker's clever plan, Lee reacted swiftly, aggressively, and fearlessly. By taking stupendous risks with his outnumbered force, he pulled off a brilliant victory. However, for those who cared to look beneath the surface, the brilliance of Lee's victory didn't altogether obscure the darker side of Chancellorsville. Total Confederate losses, almost 13,000 men versus almost 17,000 for the Yankees, meant that even though Lee thoroughly outgeneraled Hooker, it came at a high cost, about 22% of his force compared to only about 16% for the Federals. Lee had won a spectacular victory, but it came at a high cost as he used up yet more of the Confederacy's scarcest and most valuable resource, the lives of rebel soldiers. And then there was the loss of Stonewall Jackson. 
Lee knew that Jackson, as a general, was irreplaceable. When he learned that Stonewall's condition had taken a turn for the worse, Lee told the messenger, Give General Jackson my affectionate regards, and say to him, He has lost his left arm, but I my right arm. Tell him to get well and come back to me as soon as he can. But Stonewall Jackson would never be returning, and the Army of Northern Virginia was never quite the same again. On May 6th, in Washington, where he has been anxiously awaiting news from the Army of the Potomac, Abraham Lincoln learns by telegram that Hooker has suffered a stunning defeat at Chancellorsville. Lincoln's friend, newspaperman Noah Brooks, is with the president when he receives the wire. Brooks will later say, I shall never forget that picture of despair. Clasping his hands behind his back, he walked up and down the room, saying, my God, my God, what will the country say? What will the country say? The next day, May 7th, in Cincinnati, Ohio, a military commission convicts Clement Vallandigham of having expressed, quote, disloyal sentiments and opinions with the object of weakening the power of the government in its effort to suppress the unlawful rebellion. The commission orders him imprisoned for the duration of the war. Because Burnside's communications about what is happening with Vallandigham leave much to be desired, Abraham Lincoln is forced to follow the case largely through newspaper accounts, many of them peppered with thunderous condemnations of the president and Burnside. Troubled by Burnside's actions, the protest and the constitutional questions provoked by this episode, Lincoln will commute Vallandigham's sentence to exile in the Confederacy. On May 26, the Copperhead leader will be placed in Confederate hands in Tennessee. He will eventually travel to Canada, where he'll continue his campaign to be the next governor of Ohio. Having crossed his army to the east side of the Mississippi River, where the Federals are on the move and living off the land, Ulysses S. Grant has clashed with Confederates at Port Gibson on May 1st and at Raymond on May 12th. On May 14th, two columns, led by Major Generals James McPherson and William Tecumseh Sherman, battle with rebel troops, covering General Joseph E. Johnston's withdrawal from the Mississippi State Capitol of Jackson. The fall of Jackson is a blow to Southern morale and further isolates Vicksburg. At Vicksburg, Lieutenant General John C. Pemberton is caught between a rock and a hard place, since both he and Jefferson Davis believe it's essential to defend the Riverside Citadel at all cost, while General Joseph E. Johnston, in overall command in Mississippi, believes Vicksburg is indefensible and wants Pemberton to evacuate the place and march to link up with him. Pemberton elects to remain at Vicksburg. On May 16th, between Jackson and Vicksburg, Ulysses S. Grant's Federals engage Pemberton's Confederates, who are occupying Champion Hill, a 70-foot-high ridge overlooking the surrounding Mississippi countryside. Several hours of skirmishing precede four hours of intense combat. 
the hill and nearby crossroads change hands three times during the fighting, until finally the Confederates are forced to withdraw, with the Yankees pursuing until it's too dark to see. The Federal victory at Champion Hill nets Grant some 27 captured artillery pieces and hundreds of prisoners, and further weakens Pemberton by cutting off one of his divisions, which will eventually join up with Joe Johnston. The next day, May 17th, Grant's forces, pressing west, deal Pemberton's Confederates another hard blow at Big Black River Bridge within 10 miles of Vicksburg, and the reeling Confederates retreat back into Vicksburg's defenses. Encouraged by his army's successes at Champion Hill and Big Black River, and convinced that Pemberton's Confederates are demoralized by their recent battering, Ulysses S. Grant orders an assault on Vicksburg on the afternoon of May 19th. But falling back into Vicksburg's formidable fortifications has not only provided the Confederates with a significant positional advantage, it has also boosted the morale of Pemberton's battered force, and Grant's initial attack on Vicksburg is repulsed. The Federals work on their lines around Vicksburg for two days, and then, since he's very aware Joe Johnston is only 50 miles away and might come to Pemberton's aid at any time, Grant orders another assault on Vicksburg's defenses on May 22nd. After a furious bombardment by the Army of the Tennessee's artillery, the Federal infantry move on the enemy works, where they are met with murderous musket and cannon fire, and this second Union assault also fails. To take Vicksburg, Grant realizes he has no other choice but to settle into a full-on siege of the place. On May 27th, some 240 miles down the Mississippi from Vicksburg, Union forces under the command of Major General Nathaniel Banks make the first of two all-out assaults on another Confederate Riverside Strongpoint at Port Hudson, Louisiana. During the fierce combat, black soldiers of the 1st and 3rd Louisiana Native Guards, which will later be the 73rd and 75th Regiments, United States Colored Troops, here conduct themselves with extreme and costly gallantry as some 20% of the two regiments are casualties, including two of their black officers, Captain Andre Kalu and Lieutenant John Crowder, who are killed in action. Reporting on this battle, the New York Times will say, It is no longer possible to doubt the bravery and steadiness of the colored race when rightly led. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Like Men of War, Black Troops in the Civil War, 1862-1865, to by Noah Andre Trudeau. 1863 was obviously the turning point in the Civil War as far as the enlistment of black soldiers. And here in Trudeau's book, he does a fine job tackling the topics of war and race and shows how, by war's end, 180,000 African-American men had served in the federal armies. You can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website. 
which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find info on joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon and supporting the podcast in that way, just like our newest members, John L., Kurt F., and David Y. Thanks, guys. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.